people are quick to defend art institutions and say it's not their job to be activists. It's not their job to provide these health resources. And to that I say, well, one, I think it is their job. When you put something on a wall in a museum, people will memorialize it. People will historicize it. And when you're talking about AIDS activism, an epidemic that's still going on today, it is your job to push away the narrative that it's over. When you put something on a wall, it's not neutral. You're automatically historicizing it. And I think that we really do need to hold museums accountable to talk about current AIDS issues if they're going to talk about AIDS artists. Welcome to the August 23rd, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. You just heard the voice of Ariel Friedlander, one of the organizers of the recent ACT UP action at the Whitney Museum of Art in New York. She's one of the people we've interviewed for this special edition that focuses on artist David Wanarovich. He's currently the focus of a retrospective exhibition at the museum. In this edition, we ask, who is David Wanarovich? He's been a lightning rod for controversy over the years. As an activist, he advocated for AIDS funding and even protested at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. And as an artist, he was forced into court to defend his work against charges of making indecent art. And today, He's remembered as one of the luminaries of the East Village scene of the 1980s. To help us figure this out, I asked Cynthia Carr, the author of his biography, Fire in the Belly, The Life and Times of David Wanarovich, to join me and help narrate the story of a man who we remember along with Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, Nan Golden, and others. The story isn't an easy one. To start at the beginning, he was born in New Jersey, and uh, his parents divorced very early. I think he was two when they split up. And he ended up living with his father, although the mother was supposed to have visitation rights. That never happened. And the father was an alcoholic and a violent drunk. So he and his uh, sister Pat and brother Stephen grew up in a house where there was, uh, you know, lots of uh, physical, you know, beating going on. The father worked on a ship and was often gone for long periods of time, uh, which they were all thankful for. And then when he'd come back, he would usually beat them immediately after the stepmother would tell them what they'd done wrong. At some point, let's see, how old were they? All three of them remembered this differently, but I think David was maybe 12 when... The father got so angry at them that he suddenly just brought them to Manhattan and dumped them at the mother's house, and she was living in Hell's Kitchen. David would see his father once more. But it was his mother that supported him, his brother Stephen, and his sister Pat. Eventually, his brother was sent to an orphanage after he started acting out, and his sister was later thrown out by his mother. David didn't last long either. You know, and so that left David at home alone. And he started sort of leaving home. He, wouldn't, he never told me exactly why. The cryptic thing he said to me was, I guess uh, 
you know, I just decided to leave or something. But his his mother wanted him out, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, he had started turning tricks at that time. And he was about to be a senior and ended up living on the street. You know, he's very close Mm -hmm. to Times Square. And he was out on the street for maybe a year. I think that it started in probably 69. Um, I found somebody who also was a homeless kid at that time, and he said that people used to gather in Central Park at Bethesda Fountain, and he met David and recognized him as one of the people who was there. And David would sometimes sleep in the park at night. Oh, wow. With other people, you know, like this guy who I who I interviewed is another artist named David Saunders said that if you did that, you would sleep with other people in, in a circle. So if somebody would try to get at you, you know, other people would be alerted, right. you know, it was the safest way to do that. So what did he remember from that period? Like, I mean, that sounds like a very devastating period in his life, I'm guessing. Yeah. After he became known as an artist and started to be interviewed he would talk about that period because he was uh, hanging out on Times Square, turning tricks to make money. And sometimes he would go to one of those, then with lots of cheap hotels there, you know, definitely Mm -hmm. not like it is now. And some guy would take him to a room and then would let him stay the rest of the night. So he would have a place to sleep after the sex was over with. So that would happen. Or he'd just make some money and be able to you know, go somewhere. He spent a lot of time going to movies there because you could just sit all day in a theater. It was cheap. And he he met other hustlers, you know, and got to know them. And sometimes they would turn tricks together and things like that. He came to regret his time as a hustler since it influenced how people saw him. He seemed to be constantly shedding skins as he moved through his life. And also, a lot of his friends didn't really believe it, all these stories he would tell about being on the street and the things that happened to him, and they would refer to it as the mythology. But I Ah. came to discover there were things I could corroborate. Like one thing that he said that seemed very outrageous was that when he was 18, I think, he tried to ride his bicycle across the country. And I thought, nobody would do that. But I found his ex-brother-in-law who said, oh, you know, the time that he tried to ride his bike across the country, I remember that because he only got as far as Pennsylvania. (laughs) You're kidding. And he got robbed, and we had to send him money. This was, you know, David's sister Pat was the family member he remained closest to his whole life. And Pat's husband remembered that he and Pat had sent money to David to get him back to New York. Life was hard. So he went to a halfway house. But there was a stipulation he had to finish high school. And when he went back, well, he did manage to graduate, but he wasn't exactly a star student. He was ranked 403 in a class of 440. I think he always liked drawing. His stepmother told me that even when he was a little kid, she could give him a piece of paper and a pencil and he would sit there and draw. You know, that would occupy him, and he was always interested in it. One of the first trips back into Manhattan to visit his mother, who he hadn't seen in many years, she took them to the Modern. And uh, it was cheaper to get in though in those days, I think. <laughs> and Anyway, um, there was uh, Chilichev, I think that's the name of the painter, uh, some painting by him that David thought was great, and he tried to go back home and make his own version of it, which he couldn't really do. But... He was 
interested in drawing. Now, once he got off the street and got a job at Pottery Barn. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> no. The first Pottery Barn, actually a barn, actually selling pottery, was in Chelsea, which at that point was you know not a great neighborhood. He had a friend there named John Enslin, and that's when he got into poetry. Poetry? Turns out this was a secret David kept from everyone. He discovered Jean Genet, Arthur Rimbaud, and he was a poet. But that didn't last long. Years later, he decided to turn a page. And no one seemed to know he was a poet, not even his closest friends and lovers. Now, later on, this was the part of his life that he erased. He never told anyone that he had been a poet. When he emerged on the East Village scene, he just left it out. Why? I, you know, I think maybe he didn't like the poetry he'd written. You know, literary magazines, you know, that was a big thing in the 70s. There were lots of, poetry was just a thing. Like every bar would have readings, coffee houses would have readings. And so he had published in all these tiny magazines, and he took class at the Poetry Project, you know, to learn to be a poet. That was his only education after high school. And I think he didn't really feel that he had done a good job with his poetry. But he, at the time, he was proud of it. And he sent copies of the magazines to, like, his sister, Pat, who was already living in Paris, um, his stepbrother, his stepsister. They all pulled out these old magazines that were not in David's archive. He had thrown his copies away, clearly. Oh, wow. But because um, he just wanted that to not be known. Eventually... Wanarovich got caught up in the romance of being an artist, and a change of scene was clearly necessary. He moved to Paris because his sister was living there. She was a model, and she let him, you know, he could move in, although not for long because she had a studio apartment, was living with a boyfriend. She didn't want him there all that, that long, but he went there to, you know, become a writer. And... Of course, he loved Rambeau. Then he was he was horrified when he got to Paris and saw how bourgeois it was. Like, well, where's the underground? Where's Bohemia? <laughs> he, he was he you was know? imagining you know the Montmartre. Yeah, of, uh, yes, exactly. A lot before, yeah, exactly. And so he went there to you know he had all these ambitions for going. He was going to write a novel. He was going to compose songs. He was going to you know he was going to learn to play the guitar. He would learn French. He was going to, you know doing all these things, which mostly didn't happen, but. When he was there, he met um, his first true love, Jean-Pierre. He talks about cruising at the uh, outside the Louvre in the, the what is it, Tuileries there right, at Tuileries night. It's Garden, a big gay yep. cruising ground. And so he would go there every night, and he met Jean-Pierre there and ended up moving in with Jean-Pierre. And this was where you can see it if you read his journals, which are at Fales Library and are digitized, so anybody can read them. But... To me, after reading what he had done during his poetry years here, you see him becoming a writer because he's at Jean-Pierre's studio apartment every day while Jean-Pierre's at work, and he writes, and that's all he does. He, I'm sure he well, he t- would t- take walks. What a romantic image. He has a boyfriend <laughs> named Jean-Pierre walking around the Louvre, right. writing every night. You know, yeah. it's like his, his sister's a model in yeah, Paris, right. living with her boy. Like, it's just, it's... It, I mean, I could see why people called it a mythology, because yeah. these are all like, right. they're so larger than life. Well, it's true. It's, and, you know, he, so every day he's, he's writing all day long. His, I think his sister got him a typewriter for a, a birthday gift 
So he was, you know, he would just sit there and write. And if you look at the the journals at Fails, you see that it's like just a flow. There are no corrections. It's just, you know, it's not like he's whiting things out and typing over them. He doesn't do that. So, so now, what? Having looked at his writing from that period, what stands out for you? Well, one thing that it's like the journal writing. It's it's like really good writing. It starts to be really good. I mean, that's the thing that was impressive to me. But also, he was trying to write a novel about his days on the street, being a hustler, and that kind of really didn't work. You, know, you can see that he's just not sure how to go about it. He'd return to New York, and soon he'd meet someone that would become his closest friend, confidant, and champion. This is the man who pushed him into contemporary art. The career really started because of Peter Hujar. He had a brief relationship with Peter, you know, a sexual relationship that I estimate lasted for a month. And then David broke it off. And But they did become... Like David said to me, it took it took a while for this relationship to find a track to run along, but they became each other's most important friend, and Peter was like a mentor to David. And he's the one who said to him, there's something I write about in the book where Gary Schneider, who's a photographer, and uh, John Erdman, who's his, uh, his partner, boyfriend, they had a lab together. Gary Schneider was a master printer and a good friend of Hujar. Hujar is also a master printer. And Gary and John came over for dinner one night, and Hujar pulled out this little scrap of graffiti or something that David had drawn and was talking about what genius it was. And neither Gary nor John could remember it. It didn't make any kind of impression on them, but Peter thought it was genius. He said, I've told David, you have to become a visual artist. Now we're in the late 1970s. He was becoming the figure we recognize today. Now, how did this young man from Red Bank, New Jersey, become one of the most important artists to emerge from New York's downtown art scene of the 70s and 80s? I reached out to two of his artist friends from the era to share their stories. This is the beginning of his fame. Wanarovich, the poet, was dead. And Wanarovich, the artist, was born. Here's a little story that must be told. About two cool brothers that were put in a hole. Tried to hold us back. That's a taste of Charlie Ahern's 1983 classic hip-hop film, Wild Style. It typifies some of the new energy that was about to burst forth from a city that had seen better days, but continued to attract some of the best and brightest with nowhere else to go. I think we were all rejects. I think we were all running from... From home, I think we weren't clones, and we weren't Upper East Siders, and we weren't Studio 54. That's Frank Holiday. He's an artist often associated with the East Village scene of the 1980s. And he met Wanarovich in a way, well, many art world friendships begin. The first time I met David Wanarovitz, I was being shown at a gallery, Nature Mort, mm-hmm. and I was showing a piece called Thinking of Meat. And he was there, and he said, I love your painting. And so we went outside and smoked a joint. Mm -hmm. And then we became friends, and I would see him everywhere. And we also um, had studios next door to each other at the clock tower for a year. Mm -hmm. So, And we also knew, like, Peter Hujar and, you know, 
at the bar in on Second Avenue and Fourth uh, Street, I think it was. Everybody hung out there after the openings and stuff. So, and so, what, what do you remember? What was your first impression of David? Who was this shy guy? He was really sweet, really like a science weird nerd nerdy kind of guy, but he was very kind and kind of bashful to mm. me anyway. Did he introduce himself as an artist or what it would, how do you remember he what just, that conversation he introduced was? himself as, hi, my name's David. I'm like, hi, I'm Frank. I, said, I like your painting. I was like, you know, and he was, ha he was getting ready to show those monster heads somewhere. So he invited me to that show. And so I guess we, I can't think we all kind of knew of each other, but that was the first introduction. We became friendly, but everybody had their tribes, you know? I mean, there yeah. were like these different tribes that were running around. I was running around like the Club 57, that kind of tribe. And then um, David Warnerowitz was, you know, Kiki Smith and that kind of tribe. So there were these different tribes and we interacted and the different galleries we would show at it and interact it. But um, I mean, we became closer later on when, you know, act up and you know, all of the, the protests and, and all of that was going on. Hearing stories like this always brings history alive, since they also puncture the carefully manufactured mythology. Art in the 80s was an unexpected multimedia spectacle, and Wanarovich was at the center. What you're listening to is Three Teens Kill Four, the band he was part of. It's just before this period that artist Jean Foos moved to New York City. And in 1979, she met another artist, Dirk Roundtree. Dirk then introduced her to another artist. That was David Wanarovich. I actually met him with two other people, John Hall and Brian Butterick, two of his friends. They used to come by Dirk's apartment on the in the West Village on 10th Street and just dive into his record collection and his magazines and his books and Dirk was an artist photographer and uh, they would go out and shoot things and uh, at that time David didn't have a camera so we would all hang out together we'd go to Tiffany's coffee shop which was nearby when they first met Jean she didn't know he was an artist it's just that he, he was so intensely interested in literature and curious and um, shared so much with us. Uh, I mean, at first it was more like he was Dirk's friend. Um, he thought of himself as, as a writer, even though now I know he's been, he had been filling um, notebooks with collages and writing. Incredible. It's incredible what mm -hmm. he was doing that we kind of had no idea but he would so that was all that was all kind of hidden like people weren't seeing that he was sort of it, doing squirreling it away in his notebooks yes i think so i'm not sure how much he was writing right then mm -hmm. but i think he was um and he was always bringing drawings collages xerox collages both dirk and he experimented with xerox machines that's the spirit of experimentation that typified the east village scene which was a ragtag group who, well, they seemed to try everything. That makes it all sound more haphazard than it probably was. But the spirit of adventure united them all. 
David was great about going on little adventures. He was kind of fearless that way. It was like New York City was his backyard. And, you know, I mean, I did it as a kid, but uh, he, and he yep. sort of brought that back. That uh, one time there was an art show in a, uh, just off Avenue B on like 6th or 7th Street uh, in an old, a big school building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we went to this big group show and then we went up on the roof and crawled out onto, into this office building. It was an AT&T office building. It turns mm-hmm. out it was the Cristodoro house, which later, oh, yeah. you know, but at that time it had been deserted for a long time. And um, we just walked in off the um, roof of this building and explored. Uh, David had been there before. And um, there was a swimming pool, empty swimming pool. um, And then just empty, you know, we just sneaked around and and explored a little bit. And then uh, came back out through the window. (laughs) And then that's kind of, you know, the same thing happened with the pier later. It was another adventure. The pier that Gina's talking about, that's Pier 34, which became the setting for one of the most important cutting-edge exhibitions, if you can call it that, of the period. There was no curator, no plan, just empty walls in an abandoned pier atop the Holland Tunnel in Manhattan. I asked her to take us inside and tell us what it was like. Well, the whole pier thing, it was kind of a utopia. I mean, it sounds all like creepy or perverts or something. Mm-hmm. But here it's on the river, beautiful light, uh, sunsets, um, sparkling water, and, uh, you know, open sexuality, nudity, you know, it was like taking pictures and having fun. I was not a participant in that. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but that sense of adventure and freedom was just the best I've ever felt in my life, going into that pier and, be, and being able to paint on the walls, large scale, as big as I wanted, as much you know, wall space as I wanted. Um, I mean, eventually people came in and started, if you were on a good wall, they'd paint over your wall. But it was so huge, there was actually no reason to do that. One time there was an art show in a uh, just off Avenue B on like Sixth or Seventh Street uh, in an old a big school building, mm-hmm. uh, and so we went to this big group show and then we went up on the roof and crawled out onto into this office building. It was an AT and T office building. It turns mm-hmm. out it was the Cristodoro House, which later, oh, yeah. you know. But at that time it had been deserted for a long time. We just walked in off the um, roof of this building and explored. David had been there before. And um, there was a swimming pool, empty swimming pool. And then just, you know, we just so sneaked you're urban around explorers. And, and explored a little bit. And then uh, came back out through the window. <laughs> and then that's kind of, you know, the same thing happened with the pier later. It was another adventure. Sounds magical. Almost too good to be true. The plaster walls were gorgeous. You, the paint was just flaking off, and you could take a two-by-four and, and scrape the paint off. This beautiful plaster. It was a short-lived thing. And I think they knew, well, we knew it wasn't going to last very long. Those works on the pier, they've become the stuff of legend. 
They've also become the focus of numerous exhibitions over the years, including Something Possible Everywhere, Pier 34, NYC, 1983-84, that was curated by Jonathan Weinberg in 2016. Writing about the pier at the time, Wanarovich and artist Mike Bidlow described these abandoned riverside buildings on stilts this way. There is no rent, no electricity, no running water, no dealers, no sales, no curatorial interferences. There is 24-hour access, enthusiasm, deep sudden impulse, and some sense of possibility for dreaming. Frank remembers the pier, which he believes is the first time he saw David's art. The first thing I saw of his was the cow with the tongue sticking out in the piers. And I always loved it. I always thought that he really had an amazing way to pull images out of culture and make them, like appropriate them into these powerful political statements. Those works were typical of the graffiti and stencil pieces he was producing at the time. And the cow piece he's mentioning features a giant cow head sticking out a large red tongue as a pattern of red crosses is spread out on the same wall. The cow is a theme that comes up periodically in Wanarovich's work. Even during my conversation with Gene, a curious detail came up. He and Julie Hare put cow bones in the, in the hallway of 420 West Broadway. He was being, you know, rebellious and creating art on the street. But then Frank told me something that made me wonder what it all meant. Why cows? And what was his interest in street art anyway? I think that his interest in graffiti was the idea that we didn't, he didn't have to wait around for a gallery to hold the images that he wanted to make. And he would go to spaces, gay spaces, and he would, he would use that as an opportunity to say something about society and a message. And, you know, the whole undercurrent of that, the gay kind of subculture Hmm. I mean, he was very much about the objectification of, of gay people and how we're meat and how we're, you know, it was very much how we were looked at as numbers, not as human beings or sexual outlaws. Or, and we were sexual outlaws, I guess, by that definition. So do you think the cow piece was about that? Mm, I, I looked at it as, um, you know, I mean, I remember he did all those pieces where he got the, the posters from supermarket and when i saw those i was like okay we are being we are a consumer we are like meat we are like bought and sold we are you know and then the whole idea of hustling you know Mm -hmm. we all like hustled and so we were kind of like having to deal with being traded as bodies and and meat and kind of erased so yeah i i took that as that I mean, and also, it sounds like what you were saying about the cowboy hat and this sort of like meat and there's something kind of masculine about these sort of big creatures that are like, you know, I wonder if that's also kind of connected. Well, what's interesting is on 14th Street, that was the meat district. Right. And you would walk and... Meatpacking district. The meatpacking right. district. And I lived right there. There were the trucks, which everybody like had sex in on West Street. Right. And then you would walk up Washington and it would dead end. And those were all the transsexuals hookers were. Mm-hmm. But there were huge chunks of carcasses of meat hanging on hooks on the sidewalk. And you would go to like the Anvil, which was a after right. hours club at 14th Street. And you would walk home in the sunlight and there would be 
meat just hanging on the street, hundreds of skinned cows. So, I mean, so there's I think, that context that I think is probably lost on contemporary viewers a little bit. Well, yeah, that the was mine there, shaft yeah. was right yep, there. Right. And, you know, you would leave the mine shaft and you would, there, there would be the meat hanging up. And it wasn't unlike, you know, what we were doing later, us just being meat that would die. It was the right. same thing, just being hung and put out. Right. So right. I think he had a prophetic kind of sense of that. But I think he was talking about, about that. The more you look at Wanarovich's art, the more you realize there's so much to decipher. And a big part of that was the gay subculture of New York at the time. I asked Frank what it meant to be a gay artist during that period. Well, it was, it was still very closeted. When the MoMA first reopened, uh, Carrie Moore and me and Stephen uh, Mueller, Andrew Robinson, and Sheila Pepe, we went and did a walkthrough called Outing the Modern. And we went through every room and we talked about these artists that were gay. And most of them were not out, but they were gay. And it, so there was still like a... Are they still not out? Is that what you're saying? Most or of them were that, dead. <laughs> okay, I see. Right. I mean, gotcha. you know, like certain ones of them never came out publicly. Right. So they still had to pass. There was still homophobia. The underground, there was always the underground movement. But when it came to the surface, there was still a lot of homophobia going around. I mean, it was still macho man but not in the, you know, village people way. So, yeah, it was very tough. So did that mean that if you were, I, I'm just trying to get a, a sense for mm -hmm. people. So was there a fear if you came out, you wouldn't get a gallery show? Would it be, was there any of those kinds of fears? Well, number one, there weren't a lot of galleries. Right. There was like 420 West Broadway, which had four galleries in it. Mary Boone, Sonnabend, Weber, and Costelli. That was the art world and the Broom Street Bar. Right. Then there were the galleries on 57th Street. But no, there wasn't like this massive art was not a good career choice. <laughs> right? It, you know, they told me I, I ended up in undergraduate school and they said, Frank, don't bother going to grad school. They said, don't bother. You're already showing. You're doing it. You don't need to go there. Grad school is for people that don't know what they're doing yet. So, you know, I never went. It's different now. Yeah, yeah. But it hadn't turned into the big business. It was more elitist, actually. Even more than now. Yeah. Yeah, because there was less opportunity. Cynthia has another take. That particular case with the cow bones was something, an action he did with Julie Hare, who was part of Three Teens Kill Four. Mm -hmm. And I think it was more David's attempt to critique the art world because they installed it outside the Leo Castelli gallery. But in the, like the back of the stairway, most people would take the elevators. So they put it in the stairwell. And David did go to the meatpacking district to collect the bloody cow bones. But then, as Julie pointed out to me, they wrapped them. So they weren't bleeding all over the steps, which some people have said that's another part of the mythology. They were bleeding all over Leo Castelli's stairways. They were not. They were wrapped because they had to transport them. They couldn't. Sure. So, and then they had made some stencils on the walls at the same place, you know, and then the cow bones were there. And I think that was just a comment about the art world. So and, what was uh, the comment? You know, it was a closed system. And, you know, you it was hard for someone like David to ever enter it, which is why the East Village scene was important, because that, that broke all of that apart, you know. So 
it was a closed system. It was for rich people. It was, you know, and something that... Nothing's changed. Yeah. <laughs> or at least, no, it has changed a little maybe, but maybe, not but, as much. Well, yeah. it cha- it did change briefly in the 80s when mm-hmm. people, these, you know, people started opening galleries in storefronts in the right. East Village. Then it did change. It was a way for people to get in and start showing. And, you know, and then, of course, people get corrupted. This was the heyday of the East Village. And something was happening. Something he didn't expect. Then he went on, he got into the Whitney Biennial in 85 and immediately announced he was going to stop painting. That was his reaction to getting into the Biennial. I've had it. The art world is, I I hate the art world. I'm leaving. And in fact, he was going to leave New York. Wait, why? You know, he just was fed up with, uh, you know, in a way it's like, it's sort of a Hujar attitude, like Hujar, like you can't sell out. And it was like, he had been part of this scene that he thought was like this, this idealistic thing in his mind, the East Village scene, where we're going to get rid of all the bad things about the art world. But then it completely got incorporated into the art world. Co-opted. It was all co-opted. It was all about money. And it just sort of disgusted him. So... Actually, there's. I have a long passage in my book that I quote from Dennis Cooper, who wrote about it, who ran into David. And he writes, David launched into a tormented, self-righteous, hour-long harangue that has ever since struck me as, a defin- as definitive of East Village Art's brief moment, for better or worse. He said that his success was destroying him because he couldn't reject it in good conscience. He dreamed of this kind of recognition, had it even fantasized about exactly the kind of black sheep art world that the East Village scene encompassed in theory, a situation where art could be anything at all, and where walking into a gallery would always involve a disconcerting, confrontational experience with an uncompromising individual vision. But this belief had been contingent on the idea that New York was secretly full of artists who had as clamorous a sensibility as his own. Instead, he found himself surrounded by peers whose talent was merely raw, and raw only by virtue of economic hardship, but whose sensibilities were as were as coddling and self-indulgent as those of the Sallies, Fishels, and Longos who populated the official art world. So David's response is, I'm leaving town. I might even move to the Southwest. And he gave up his apartment, which is a big thing. Even in 1985, that was a heavy thing to do. The world was noticing. Even if the success made him uncomfortable, something big was about to happen. David was about to meet the man he would spend the rest of his life with. Actually, on January 1st of 86, he met Tom in a bar. They picked each other up. Do you know which bar? It was a bar. It was on right there in the East Village on... uh, Second Avenue. It's not there anymore. Oh, maybe it's that theater. There used to be a, a theater there that showed porn films. Mm-hmm. And I think they picked each other up in the basement. And they had done that before. They'd seen each other before and didn't even exchange names. They had sex in the basement. And then they saw each other again. And this time Tom said, oh, you want to come home with me? And Which he never would say usually because he never did that, as he said. Right. He, but this time he decided he would. And on the way home, he asked David, what, what do you do? And he said, I'm a painter. And Tom said, oh, a house painter? <laughs> so he didn't know anything. David probably liked that. He didn't know. Yeah, I think so. Didn't know anything about art. And in fact, his job was with child welfare. His job was to go to the, to the, the apartment and decide, am I taking the kid out with me right now? 
or do oh, I? Wow. So here he is. He's found the guy who's the rescuer of the abused children. Ooh, there are so many layers to that, aren't <laughs> yes, there? Yeah. You know, and then yeah. he's not introducing this guy around. It's like right. he's sort of, oh. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. Yes. David had a very, I mean, mythic life. I mean, almost, yeah. you know, it's yeah. almost like, I don't want to use the word stereotype, but the stereotype we have of this sort of New York of an era where he's sort of abused as a child, sort of left on the streets and, mm-hmm. and sort of goes off to Paris, comes back, right. is having sex on the piers, you know, and all right. of a sudden he becomes, in the Whitney Biennial, you know. So <laughs> in the mid 80s at that point, has all of a sudden his career taken off? Is he like making a living? Well, yeah, um, he is because then after he meets Tom, he kind of settles down. He starts painting again. And that's when he has that show at Gracie Mansion of the what he called the history paintings. And the show sold out, which disgusted David. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and he decided that, you know, this work. People just can't take success. Well, also. Or at he, least maybe that wasn't his version of it. He, his idea was that he suspected that people were buying it as an investment. And he hated that. Uh-huh. He said, this work means something to me. It has to mean something to you as a collector if you want to buy it. It should mean something to you, too, and not just be bought as an investment. And, you know, he had this this kind of purity about how what art was supposed to be about. It's what I'm saying this. You have to get into it before you can own it. <laughs> so, wow. So he then made another – I'm not – I'm okay, I'm going to stop painting. You know, <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, I mean <laughs> – I can't imagine that in 1980, in the 80s. Yeah, this was 86. 86. I mean, was it an investment? Like, at that point, like, I can't imagine someone's like, oh, this David, you know, Wanarovich painting is going to, like, go up in value. Did he even have a market beyond these sort of primary market venues? Well, it could happen. I'm thinking, I mean, the other, the people in the more, like, the official art world of that time, maybe... You know Jeff Koons or whatever people Julian were buying, Schnabel or, or yeah, yeah. Or, or Longo or those people. If you bought the paintings, and David's probably were cheaper than any of those things, uh, and you could see it as okay, this will increase in value, and you right. know, so there was a bit of an expectation even then. Maybe. Yeah, 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 and he was like this. You know, he was sort of one of the stars of the East Village scene, I guess. You know, and mm-hmm. so they thought, okay. This is a good investment, you know. So, although he did always have collectors who were into the message. The wonderland of the East Village was raging, but the storm clouds, they were overhead. The first person that I actually knew was Nicholas Mufarej, and he died very early on. But even that was sort of like, well, that's really tragic. But I didn't have a sense that it was going to happen to everybody I knew. The person Jean mentioned was a critic and artist who was one of the first in the scene to fall ill. Cynthia agreed it was a very pivotal moment. Yes, uh, Nicholas Mufarage was, the f- I think, the first person that he knew who had died of AIDS. Um, and he was a writer and an artist. Yeah, he was, and he came from Beirut, but then mm-hmm. had gone to Paris, went to Harvard, got mm-hmm. a master's degree in chemistry, and then he was the first champion of the scene as a writer, and he painted on needlepoint canvas and did large embroideries. You know, I think his work is very interesting. It has it's sort of not gotten much attention now. But he died in 85, and I mention here in, the, in my book that 
even people who hadn't known him personally could still recall where they were when they heard the news because he had been an important person in the scene and he was dead from this mysterious illness. And um, What were people calling the illness at the time? Well, I th- it did have the name AIDS by then, but it's funny, when Klaus Nomi died of AIDS, there was a an obituary for him that ran in the East Village Eye, and they didn't mention the word AIDS. So it's something about a mysterious illness, you know. And that in was fact, the code. Yeah, and in fact, Nicholas Mufaraj's uh, obituary in the Times said that he died of pneumonia, you know. So it was just there was that AIDS-related pneumonia. I'm sure that did right. kill him. When he died, people started to realize something was going on, but nobody could have predicted New York would become the epicenter of this mysterious virus. There was a time when it wasn't in our awareness. And my generation especially was, we were riding on the wave of sexual revolution and gay, you know, gay live. I mean, we were ba- we based our identity on having sex, mm-hmm. right? It was like, that was what our identity was. So we had a lot of sex. Mm-hmm. That's what it was about. And, you know, we were also coming, you know, the certain drugs were infiltrating and we and people were riding on that and and then all of a sudden what, were, what drugs were coming well, like cocaine and Got quaaludes it. and you know marijuana and some people i guess were into heroin and mm-hmm. some psychedelics it's hard not to get emotional about a story that no matter how often you hear it continues to feel devastating david's best friend and mentor would also succumb Pujar got his diagnosis, I think, on on January 1st, you know, and calling his doctor and refusing to go to the office and saying, you have to tell me on the phone. So the guy finally did. And so he finds out he has, he has AIDS. And this was, of course, devastating for David. So then he goes into this year of helping Peter, being at Peter's house every day, basically, but also making the film, A Fire in My Belly, which he never finishes, and the, um, the Four Elements paintings, you know, the earth, air, fire, and water. The one, Wind for Peter Hujar, is one of the key pieces in that. And that show is in September. By then, he's not a big deal artist anymore. He makes hardly any money that year. Why? I get, well, I guess he's fallen out of favor, and, and uh, they've moved on to... But Jeff. who's he fallen out of favor? Like the art magazines were writing about him. There or was is a it like I, there was a piece about him about how he was the representative of all this bad art in the East Village. You know, it was I, I can't remember which magazine, the Arts or something, some magazine. Arts like magazine, that. I think right, so. That was a magazine of that era. And these these paintings are so different from anything he's painted before, and I think they're amazing pieces, especially wind and water. They're really amazing pieces. And actually, there were some key collectors, these two, a gay couple, who were you know, interested in him, and they bought Wind for Peter Hujar. But that's the only painting that sold. I think one of the few that sold the entire year. So he's really getting... So it was feast or famine for him. Yeah. He's you know, running out of money, but very focused on Peter. Right. You know, and then Peter dies on Thanksgiving. In the same year. In the same year, yeah. That must have been devastating. Oh, yeah. It was really uh, horrible. And David is is writing about it. One of his famous pieces that ends up in Close to the Knives, you know, is is done about, about, you know, about Peter. And 
going out to Long Island to f- supposedly get a cure. You know, someone out there is uh, has this experimental cure. And, there were a lot of those things at that era, weren't there? Yeah. And, of course, people were trying them because, uh, I mean, AZT had been approved, but it, that wasn't a cure. And for a lot of people couldn't tolerate it either. So, um, so, so when did David realize or discover he had HIV? He finally got tested in 88. He and Tom both. And Tom got tested first and was HIV positive. And then at some point after that, David decided he would. And, you know, there was a lot of hesitation then to do that because there wasn't any help and you could be stigmatized. You could lose your job, you know, right. things like that. So a lot of gay men chose to not get tested because of that. But Tom thought it was important and he did it. And then he and David had a huge argument about it. But David finally did it too and found out. And so that's 88. And he goes into this giant depression. He's still dealing with his grief over Hujar. But he does create one, this one piece called Untitled Hujar Dead. And uh, that was done, I think, near the end of that year with the photographs he took of Peter just, you know, the minute after his death, he photographed Peter. 23 pictures, 23 photographs, yeah. you know, because that goes with his totally. his scheme. 23 chromosomes. 23 genes in a chromosome. Genes in a chromosome right. And Peter was in room 1423. You know, he wrote that all on the... The, the right. envelope that had his contact sheets, he wrote that down. So he's still dealing with that grief, but the the photos of Hujar dead get incorporated into this piece that he's making where he really, and also he's moved into Hujar's loft and isn't supposed to be there. He's not legal there. Right. So that fight begins. And then he gets his own diagnosis and he doesn't have any money. But what he's focused on is completing this piece. By the end of the 1980s, AIDS became the leading cause of death in New York City for all men between the ages of 25 to 44, and black women between the ages of 15 to 44. Those statistics explain some of the urgency that the emerging wave of activism was riding on. And you can understand why ACT UP, or the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, why they were crucial. Frank remembers how important the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community center was in that fight. And ACT UP was starting to meet there. And so a lot of the, the groups that were in, in the gay and lesbian center, you know, that became like the thing the, the, where the energy was. And it was organized and it was angry and we weren't being victims. We were being proactive. I think that's a lot of why ACT UP happened is that there was a function spiritually and culturally and emotionally and there was such injustice that had to be you know we had to take it in our hands i think it was you know the a mobilizing a group of people that in numbers we could be strong he knows it made a difference one action at a time yeah it made a huge difference and you couldn't really focus on the result you had to focus on the action and bringing it into the consciousness of the people and standing up for some something um, to make it visible, you know, to use civil rights acts of protest that we do have rights to do in this country. We had to stand up as a group of people that were being 
you know, marginalized and made invisible. So, you know, the gay movement wasn't just about disco. It was, you know, there were smart, radical people there that were fighting for their lives. So, you know, you'd go to a meeting and it'd be very angry and it was very democratic and, you know, you would talk and they would there would be groups of people that would start figuring out like what they needed to do. And there was a lot of medical kind of information there and they would name an action. And then you would have a part in the action. You'd be told exactly what to do and when to show up. And, you know, a friend of mine, the St. Patrick's um, was one that I'll never forget, but he was Jeff Poole is his name, um, is his name. Act Up got his action was to show up two days before in a suit and tie at the St. at um St. Patrick's and hand out folders about what was getting ready to happen for ACT UP. And they wanted him because he looked like a very like straight businessman, you know, so that they would relate to him. So they infiltrated before to say, this is what's happening. Don't freak out. We're not, we're not going to, but here it is. And then mm. once we knew it was about sex, it was like, wear a condom. And of course the Catholic church birth control is not on their agenda. And we're like, you'd rather have people die than to prevent other people getting infected. And it was like, basically, yes, they would rather people die. You know, they abstain. Well, I'm sorry, we that's not who we are. Well, the first action is they went in and threw condoms and disrupted the service. But then all of a sudden you have all the police standing in, in shields and you're you're there with your, you know, your act up right. t-shirt and you're screaming and you're yelling and you're chanting. It's very organized though. I mean, there's certain rules that you follow. It's mm -hmm. not like mayhem, you know. And then once you stop, you have to go in circles all the time. So people, there were thousands of people. And then you would have the, the Christian. That's a big action. Oh, it was huge. It was huge. And, you know, and then you, there would always be the, the gay haters, you know, with the signs of you're going to hell. And I've forgotten his name, uh, the, the Christian right guy that was, anyway. Um, but they would be there saying, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. And then we would be there, no, we're, <laughs> no kidding, we're already in, this is hell. You know, we're dying. It's like, so, but there was kind of like, there was nothing else to lose. So we fought. And then, you know, and, and once you stopped, and then you would start screaming and pushing forward, and the police would come with their riot gear and start pushing back. And so you would have... But there was also a weird carnival aspect to to those big actions too. Right. I, I remember I that's the last time I saw Keith. It was some guy had a burning Bible in the middle of the of the circle, and I looked at Keith up from that, and we looked back, and then I looked over my head, and there was like you know um, a guy dressed up as Sister Patrill and the Flying Nun going ah, <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's like so it was like this. It was still gay. I mean, we were still entertaining the troops. Um, I know, and it, all of his friends had him hosted, hosted over, had him hosted over the head, and he was had his like I'm flying. Ah. It was so that was that was going on too. Right. I mean, it was a gay, a gay right. group. Right. And you know, and then you know, then people would be dragged off and people would be dragged off or there were there were some that we would lay down in the middle of fifth avenue yeah. and then it would stop traffic and then the cops would come and just start loading us in act up was at the forefront of that long fight that continues to today and david was definitely involved often on the front lines but he was also helping others like gene who remembers his resolve 
David was there helping us all deal with death. And he was dealing with it, but he was so helping us. I don't know how, you know, how he helped us exactly, but he was just there and fighting when a lot of us were just kind of traumatized. Hmm. You know, it's like, uh, can I paint anymore after, you know, when I'm going through this stuff? I mean, we, we did. We certainly did. The disease, needless to say, changed everything. And the whirlwind of the 1980s suddenly came to a close. It happened so fast that suddenly there's the East Village galleries and, and you know, so much was going on. And then they were gone. Those who survived remember it fondly. Well, parts of it anyway. I think it was, you know, it's like Camelot. <laughs> I mean, I think... It was charmed? Is that what it is? It was a charmed period in some ways? It was a charmed period in some ways. I mean, in the beginning, yeah. And there was a lot of opportunity. But then it became like as any movement happens. What do they say? Only 75 people can handle one group and then it splits into two. Mm. So there, a group can handle 75 people. And so that's what started happening in the East Village. It, it was a big group and then it started b- breaking into... F- you know, this group, neo-expressionism versus, you know, the Pat Hearn group versus mm-hmm. the, you know, the East Village was not just one right. thing. It became little um, competitive tribes with art and their movement fighting against each other. And so, you know, the, the hold hands and let's sing songs didn't last that long, especially when money comes into it. Of course. Money, property, and prestige, you know. Death united us. Right. I mean, we... But... Then the art world, we have to understand is the art world, there was all that money all of a sudden. Right. There was tons of money. There was fame to be had. There was money, all those things, plus all the death and then all the tribal kind of competition. So the East Village scene was winding down. The art world was moving on. David was an artist and activist. And Cynthia was one of the only people David allowed to see him at the end. She described for us those final years in a city that is so unlike the New York City of today. It's almost hard to describe because I know for myself that I got up every morning and read the obituaries right away. That was the first thing I read Mm -hmm. because there would always be someone who had died of AIDS and it would usually be, often it would be someone who was in the arts and I'd go, oh, no, not that one. You know, I mean, it was like this ongoing thing. You'd walk down the street and you'd see people, you know, men who were really thin and had lesions on their faces. My own friend, Keith Davis, I ran into on the street one day and he had a big Kaposi's lesion at the end of his nose and was telling me how, you know, I'm going to beat it. And I mean, he was dead within a few months after that. You know, he was a friend of David's. And it was just a thing where, you know, death was in the air suddenly. I mean, you'd, you really would see people on the street all the time who were sick, and you knew that they were going to die. So I think for, for David, it was important to deal with the mortality, and he planned it out like that last image in his body of work, which is this face coming through the dirt. He planned that out very carefully, and it was done on the last trip he ever made in 91, the last trip out west. He knew exactly where he wanted to go to do it, and he was with his friend Marion Skimama, and 
said, okay, we're going to go right here. There's this loose dirt. Where was it? It was somewhere in the in uh, in the southwest that he he loved going down there. You like know, New Mexico, so, or yeah, New Mexico. Know. I can't remember if it was New Mexico. I mean, it's it's in here. I yeah. can look, but he planned that out very carefully. And by the time the pictures, Gary Schneider did the printing because David was too weak to print, and he was also too weak to sign them. I think he's he did approve the print that was going to be used from the contact sheet. He approved which one it would be, but he was too weak to sign his name after the prints were done. So it was a small addition, I think. And then you were one of the only people that was able to spend or were, that he allowed to be with him for the last six months of his life. Is that correct? Yeah, there were, there were a few people that he allowed in there. Pretty sure Gene was one of them. Um, but there were certain people he'd been friends with who he just sort of cut off from. They would call, I, I think, just to try to see what they could do or whatever. He just didn't want to see a lot of people. And I don't know why he allowed me to be there because I hadn't been a close friend. I mean, I'd I'd uh, done the the piece about him and for the voice, but um, and then I wasn't I didn't go out to dinner with him or anything like that. I did call him though at one point when someone told me that he was feeling that he was very sick, but also very depressed. He didn't want anybody to come over, and so I called him. And left him. I mean, he didn't answer, but I left a message on the machine. I said, David, if you need help getting groceries or doing your laundry, I will help you, and I won't even come in. Just hand the laundry bag out the door. I'll bring it back and hand it back in. I don't have to come in. Same with groceries. You know, I don't care if you don't want to socialize, fine. And I never heard back from him, but like a month or so later, he started calling me and talking about his illness. And I think, I don't know why he allowed me to come at the end, you know, when he needed people to be there because he was fragile. What I learned from all these stories was how complex Wanarovich was. And every story I heard seemed to reveal another layer. Not everyone seemed to know everything. That's why Cynthia's perspective is so crucial. David compartmentalized his life, but why? The way she describes it is strangely poetic. It's like his life was, he's on this big ship, and he's keeping the compartments below decks all sealed off, and if he opens all of them, the the, the boat will drown. <laughs> the boat uh, will capsize and drown. You know what I mean? It's something like that. There's a coping like mechanism. I, th- I think so. And, um, yeah, so for example... The big well, the biggest example I think of is the fact that his uh, boyfriend Tom, he didn't talk about Tom at all, and there were only a few people in his life who even knew that Tom existed. And he met Tom in '86, and they were together for the rest of David's life until David's death in '92. And people didn't know. And people did not know. And it's like there was a corner of his life that no one entered except for there were a few people like Judy Glansman had met Tom. His friends Gary Schneider and John Erdman had met him, but everyone else didn't, didn't even know about him. You know? How, that, that seems really odd, doesn't it? I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I guess I'm trying to understand. <laughs> I think he was, I think, well, David did create a persona in a way. I see. You know, and in a way, having this, this steady boyfriend maybe didn't fit in with the image <laughs> or something, but also it was just a, 
maybe just a safety mechanism, that this is a place for me only, other people can't go here. And this is where I go, and I'm safe here, and I have Tom, and no one can come in. You know, right. that kind of thing. Only a few very trusted people can know. Were they were they committed to one another, or was it sort of like they were just, how did that relationship work? Did they only see each other at home? Were they So I guess they weren't socially out together. Well, they weren't socially out. In fact, Tom talks about walking down the street and running into artist friends of David's, and David wouldn't introduce him. Oh, wow. You know, which made him furious, of course, and they would have fights about it. But that's just what David was going to do. David would eventually die. But even in death, the mythology continued. And then there's the, the famous story, which she now says didn't happen, but he was carried down in a body bag, um, and Judy and I think I think it was Philip Zimmerman who was there too, and they went down as they were the body bag was being carried over to the uh, the vehicle. Who should pass but Diamante Galas? And she wow. said, "Is that David Vojnarovic?" And they sort of nodded yes, and she started to scream. So Diamante Galas is the one who did the soundtrack for Fire in the Belly. Well, not to her knowledge. Oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> that was put together by Rosa von Praunheim. She oh, didn't even know I see. that they took, but she did that amazing piece of the, the plague mass. Right, that was an amazing right. piece of work. Right. And he kind of borrowed it and just stuck it in there, and she didn't even know. But it's an amazing piece of music, and she was she was on it in terms of addressing the plague. Right. You know, and uh, so in a way it was appropriate. But, you know, she... So that story she, did happen or didn't well, happen? Well, about, about her. She says it didn't happen, but the people. Oh, Diamanda Galas says she, it happened. Diamanda says she doesn't remember it, but um, the people who were there, like like Judy, they remember it. They remember it. It made a big impression, you know. And I, you know, so they saw her. So he ended on but, another mythic note. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I've discovered as a person who is now. Oddly enough, turning into a biographer, which I never thought I would be, um, people do remember things differently. Yeah, like the story of how David went from his father's house to his mother's house. He, his sister, and his brother had three entirely different stories, and I will swear to my grave, none of them were lying, but at least two of them were wrong. They just, they were. I mean, they were remembered mm-hmm. it so differently. And they weren't lying to me. It tells me. you a lot about memory, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> and families. <laughs> yes. And families. I mean, that was a traumatic experience. Yeah. So, And they were kids. So, but, you know. So, to, just to be clear, Diamanda Glass says it didn't happen. Right. But there are a number of people who say it did. Who saw her and said it did happen, yeah. Well, sometimes traumatic moments kind of like people close off yeah, memories. Yeah, yeah. So, you kind so of wonder. So, I, you know, anyway... So she, um, yeah, then she inadvertently got caught up in that, uh, that whole thing at the National Gallery when the, but because her music had been put in there without her knowledge. I mean, that's, that's terrible. David did not do that, you know. Oh, so she, he had no role he in had, that. He had no, no. But they were friends. Well, they had talked once on the phone. That was I mean, it. That, that was it. I mean, they, you know, I think, I mean, he was already sick, I think, by the time they talked. 
But he, you know, he respected her. He knew what she was doing. And if he had lived, they might have collaborated on something. Who knows? I mean, he, he worked with another musician, Ben Neal, to do that piece at Sofomo. So who knows if he might have worked with Diamanda because he, he had total respect for her. And, and maybe he didn't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, and he didn't tell anyone? Maybe? Well, Is that possible? Well, I can't remember who told me that they had spoken once. I think maybe I may have said something to him about her, because I went to see the Plague Mass when she performed it, and it was really an amazing piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but she probably told me that they had talked once on the phone, you know. So now, to end things, what do you think people may be surprised to know about David? And then also... What do you think people think they know about David that's not true? Well, I think this will sound pretty mundane, but the surprise to me was the poetry years and the way he tried to erase that. That was very surprising to me. It was, you know, years of his life that he just took out of his story. And um, I thought, okay, David, well, (laughs) I'll, I'll deal with it. And, you know, no one knew about that those years. He cut off from all those people. And one of them said, someone who had been a close friend of him, uh, as his at that time, said, I think he decided to become a different person. And so everyone you know? from the 70s almost was cut off from him. Yeah. Except for Dirk. Dirk Roundtree. Which is uh, Jean's Jean partner. Fuse's husband, yeah. yeah. And, you know, he stayed acquainted with Dirk through all of it. And I, I can't really explain that. But, you know, I mean, Dirk is great, but I don't know why he cut off from everyone else, because there were some, uh, some, some other really good people that he stopped seeing. So That's so interesting. Well, he, thank you, Cynthia. This was really, well, thank you. really um, fascinating. And thank you for sharing. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's hard not to mourn such a mythic sounding figure. But then I was thinking about it. And the recent protests at the Whitney, you get the sense that his spirit continues. Last month, Arielle Friedlander went to the Whitney Museum with her photography class. She didn't know that much about Wanarovich, except for one image. I first encountered Wanarovich's work actually in a ninth grade art history class and um, in basically the Dictionary of Art History, which is Gardner's Art History Through the Ages. Um, they had his piece, which still remains my favorite today, When I Put My Hands on Your Body by Wanarovich. And at that point, I did not know much about the AIDS crisis, but I remember being really touched by it. And I didn't exactly realize when I first went with my photography class to the Wanarovich exhibit that he was, in fact, the artist of that piece. And then when I saw it in person, it was even more powerful. But something bothered her. The crisis wasn't there. Did people think it was over? When I went into the exhibit, I was, of course, moved by Wanarovich's work, but I was also upset. And at first, I didn't really know why. And then I realized it was because I was seeing all these artworks and I was seeing in my own eyes how they connected to the current AIDS crisis. But I knew that because they were on a wall, because they were in a museum, it would be immediately memorialized and historicized by everyday viewers. And um, people would think the AIDS crisis is over. Ariel brought the idea back to ACT UP, and fellow activist Annie Furay remembers it was discussed by the group. 
She said, I feel like this exhibit historicizes AIDS more than it should. It could be better. And what do we do about it? And we came up with the idea to plaque these recent news articles, um, because I meticulously save all the news articles about HIV, like Mm -hmm. many ACT Uppers. Mm -hmm. And we plaqued them, and Friday night we were there. (laughs) It was very simple. Uh, We went during the free hours to make it as accessible as possible. The group showed up, and they made their views known. Things, according to them, went smoothly. Actually, just fantastic. It was one of the best actions I think we've ever, or we've done recently. It was very smooth. It was well-received. And it was well-tailored to our audience, which was actually our goal. We wanted it to look respectful. We wanted it to match the setting and the audience. Um, You know, we did not want to be aggressive. We wanted to, you know, basically lead by example on how you can use art to help educate the public. And it was a silent protest, correct? Yeah, we're very mindful of respecting the Whitney and the visitors. And um, we stood next to the artworks. We didn't block the art. We didn't block the wall statements. If people had questions or they wanted to know more or they wanted a flyer, then they could talk to us and we'd be happy to have a conversation with them. And we had many rewarding conversations with museum goers and workers from the Whitney alike. After our first action, obviously reaction was mixed as always, but um, overwhelmingly it was positive, especially from HIV positive people. And and we had a a request from a member of the deaf community that we repeat the action during the Whitney Signs Tour, which is the sign language tour on Saturday. And we thought that sounded like a great idea. So we we actually communicated with the Whitney and they agreed that that was a a good idea. In response to the action, the Whitney did change some of the labeling in the exhibition. But there are a few things that caught Ariel and Annie by surprise. And one of them was actually the museum's response. I've um, been incredibly grateful for the Whitney's response so far. Um, The first thing that they did was just a few days after our initial action was they actually changed one of their wall plaques for a piece that was um, called Untitled Act Up, which was originally created by Wanarovich to um, fundraise for ACT UP. And um, in this new statement, they, for one, acknowledged Wanarovich's activism in ACT UP, and then they also acknowledged that AIDS is not history and the um, epidemic isn't over. And then, even more surprisingly, they acknowledged that on July 27th, 2018, ACT UP came and demonstrated at this exhibit, which was That's written in one of the wall plaques now. That is now on the wall plaque, which really does suggest that they're open to criticism and want to learn and grow with us. So after the two actions and all the publicity it generated, Ariel and Annie still want people to know the facts about AIDS and HIV. And you can hear the frustration in their voices. I think that a lot of people think that they know about HIV um, and are defensive or reluctant to learn more. They think that... uh, they think that the crisis is over, so there's really no need to like learn or grow or still advocate for change. And, and I think that we ACT UP sees that in all the work that we do. We've had incidents lately with um, doctors in hospitals not knowing about modern HIV science. I see the way that AIDS is being talked about. And the reality is that people either think that it's over, they think that AIDS died in the 80s and 90s, and so did ACT UP, and so did every person who was HIV positive at that time. People also think that they aren't at risk of contracting HIV, when again, the reality is that for, um, 44% of people um, between the ages of 13 and 24 in the United States who are HIV, HIV positive don't know. 
Um, and I would just like to add to that that the the lifetime risk rates for HIV, according to the CDC, and this is you know up to date, are one in 130 for white men, gay or straight. One in 20 for black men, gay or straight, and one in two for gay black men. Those are epidemic levels. Wow, Those one are in two. One in two, which is higher than in any country on earth. That's that that is that's really New York Times article. It was in our Whitney exhibition, and that's one of the ones that Whitney added to their website. Um, so we actually do have an HIV epidemic here in the United States, but because that epidemic is in essentially low-income people of color, uh, people don't think about it very much. Um, Let's see. And, and actually something that's been, I would just like to say, frustrating for us is that we've been doing all this work around prep access and advocacy for a year. And, you know, most of our actions, people take a couple of pictures and put them on Instagram uh, and that's it. But this the Whitney thing, which we thought would be kind of small, blew up um, and has gotten more attention than anything uh, because people are more interested in talking about like the contentious art world issue than they are about talking about this HIV medication access. So we're going to use the end of this podcast to disseminate some of the info that the group feels isn't being heard in all the coverage about a protest and David Wanarovich and a lot of the actions ACT UP has been doing. And I asked them what they wanted to emphasize. What aren't people hearing? And they settled on two things they wanted to discuss. U equals U and PrEP. U equals U is established well-researched medical science that says that people with an undetectable viral load, which means the amount of HIV in their body is very, very low, cannot transmit the virus to their partners. Um, this is established medical science. It's been well-researched, and a lot of people are very uh, reluctant to believe it, or they have not heard about it in the first place, including doctors. So then how do people get to that, uh, that level? I mean, is that something that's drug um, is it their drugs they're taking in order to like reduce or what does that mean? I guess for, you know, the quote unquote everyday person, what does that mean? Um, it's that can actually be achieved just by taking regular antiretroviral medication. People who've been mm. on their regular HIV medication for, you know, it can take six months or a couple of years, depending on, you know, where you start. Uh, generally speaking, can achieve U equals U just by taking standard HIV medication. And what other issues are a priority right now for AIDS awareness? One of ACT UP's biggest concentrations right now is in regards to PrEP. And um, this is a drug that prevents people from getting HIV. If someone is on PrEP, they cannot get HIV. Um, and the problem with PrEP access right now is that it'll only costs $6 to make for a monthly dose. However, Gilead, a pharmaceutical company, currently has the patent on PrEP, and they're charging upwards of $2,000 a month for this drug that should be accessible for all and is incredibly cheap to make. And actually a huge problem that it's causing is people who have strong insurance plans are usually able to get PrEP. And then people who are on uh, public health plans like Medicaid are mm -hmm. able to get PrEP. And then people who have kind of normal health insurance plans can't get it. And But the whole thing is really odd because effectively the taxpayer is being billed twice if you think about it because they're charging so much for this, yeah. this pill that um, – that money then has to be supplemented out of copay assistance programs, Medicaid budgets, and, and so on. So then our money is going right back into it, even though we already funded the research. And finally, I couldn't help but wonder what David would have thought of this action in his own retrospective. So I asked. I think it's good for them. It's good for us. Good for the Whitney. Do you think David would have been happy? Oh, David would have loved it. I mean, that was his whole his whole thing. All of our things was, you know, protest and that we have the right to do that. 
Um, no, I think that by calling attention to something, you know, the young kids are very, very aware and they're very sophisticated and they're very worldly. They're connected to the world in a different way than we were. And what I love about it is that they're harnessing that and they're using it to make a point. Like they were saying, hey, AIDS is still here. I mean, has anybody been cured from AIDS? I don't think anybody has. You know, it's like it's not over. I mean, yeah, it's like it's exhausting, but it's not over. And there's still people that are dying from it all over the world. It's not over. Let's remember that. This week, I want to send a special thanks to Twig Twig for providing the music to this week's episode. And a special, special thank you to Cynthia Carr, our fantastic co-narrator. I'm Harag Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. And I'm going to give the last word to Wanarovich himself. No way. I'm not going to sit still and be silent about it. How heroic. To the barricades! Thanks for listening. Until next week. <laughs>